Testing, testing, testing. It seems like we always have to come back to talking about testing, and it always seems like we have to come back to talking about school choice. So let's do it on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and shed light on the dark forces affecting our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at Brightbeam, a digital activism nonprofit. And my co-host is Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Ravi, welcome, man. Are you ready to dive in on some tough stuff today? Yes, sir. This is my last official podcast this year, or at least for a while from Costa Rica. I'm heading to San Diego after this. So if you are a listener and you've got some great schools or education stuff for me to check out in the area, shoot us a note. I always love to just see what's happening out there. I'm vaguely aware of the fact that there's some innovative stuff happening in that area, but I can't put my finger on why I think that. So please shoot me some ideas of places to check out. And I will put in a request to creep around whatever schools are around there and see what's happening under the hood. This is specific to San Diego? Well, anywhere, I guess, but that's where I'm going to be for a month. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Another big piece of news is we at The Lost Debate have a newsletter coming out this week. It's brand new, fresh off the presses, totally free. It's called Imbroglio, and it's a newsletter about educational practice. And my first piece is actually, you know, me talking about where if I could start a high school today, I started a high school once before. I I don't think I necessarily put my best foot forward in that effort. It was late (laughs) in the game while I was superintendent of Republic schools and I was burnt out. And I think we did that more out of a sense of obligation. And within the first year I was, I left as superintendent. So I never really got to see that through anyway, but I wasn't like I had a visionary plan anyway for that school. But so I write about, well, you know, with a few years hindsight, six years now, what would a high school look like if I were starting it today? So that's the first piece. So you can go check that out at Imbroglio on Substack. That's I-M-B-R-O-G-L-I-O. I guess it's an Italian word. Brolio. So check it out, Imbroglio. <laughs> And along those lines, uh, you can find my Substack, citizen.substack.com. I wrote a piece this week about school choice, which we're going to talk about school choice in today's episode. When we get there, we won't necessarily talk about my piece, but I did write about the hijacking of the school choice movement by crazy right-wing folks who are going to make it hard for the rest of us to convince the public that school choice is a good thing. And we want to convince the public that school choice is a human right. It's a right of everybody to determine where when and how they will become educated. And we think that's a human right. And we don't want that movement to be hijacked by people who only want that right for a very select few of Americans and to hell with everybody else. Before we get there, do want to tell you every week, we tell you that we care about what you think and what you want to give us in terms of feedback. One way to give us feedback is to call us at 321-213-9171 and leave a voicemail. Another way to get feedback to us is to send us a message to citizenstewartshow at lostdebate.com. And uh, you guys do not disappoint. In this last week, we got some messages that we think are phenomenal or interesting or uh, critical that we will, you know, listen, feedback 
feedback is a gift, we are more than welcome to receive it. And Ravi, I think you got one email that you were looking at that you particularly were interested in talking about. Yeah, let me let me outline this. It's from an anonymous fan of the show who pointed out a couple issues that she saw with the way we talked about this charter school Supreme Court case. And this has to do with the North Carolina charter school that wanted to defend its dress code against what's called the 1983 challenge in federal courts. And 1983 essentially says that you can sue the state government or employees uh, under the color of state law for civil rights violations. And in this case, they were alleging a constitutional violation for this uniform policy. And this listener pointed out a couple of things. One is I alluded to the fact, we've since taken it out of the episode because I was dead wrong about this, that the charter school community in general was in favor of this charter school, like defending this charter school. And I think I'd read too much into the fact that there was an amicus brief from Great Hearts Academy, which is one charter school network. And I, in my head, leapt to the conclusion that the charter school movement in general was behind them. And that is not true. So the National Association of Charter Schools authorizers, the National Public Charter Schools Association, KIPP, the Charter School Growth Fund are all like not in favor of this North Carolina school. And so translation, the charter school community writ large wants charter schools to be treated as public schools, which makes sense. Like that has been long the message and the thrust of the charter school movement and the people like Diane Ravitch and all those types of people don't want charter schools to be considered public schools because they want to paint the movement as privatizers. And so definitely want to make that clear. There's also a comment about this Supreme Court case, and it's not really about dress codes, this listener said. It's about whether charter schools are state actors or not. We got into this. I think we wound up editing down this segment uh, because I made some other blunders that we cut out. It wasn't necessarily me at my best in this segment. So we did get into this where we were reading statutes and whatnot, which I'll come to in a second. So it's absolutely right. Like at a certain point, there is this question about whether this dress code was in fact a constitutional violation. But before we ever get there, they have to ask this question about whether the charter schools could be subject to these 1983 claims or not. That's the big question. And then there was a, a point about, well, the listener was suggesting that I was oversimplifying it about whether you know there's this false choice about whether charter schools are public or not. And I brought up collective bargaining and things like that. And I think that's a good segue. So in response to this email, I did a huge deep dive, Chris, into all the amicus briefs before the <laughs> Supreme Court, because then I'm like, all right, let me bring the level of care I generally bring in these stories to this one, because clearly I missed something. So I went through this and I, I, I wanted to come out the other side and be like, yeah, absolutely. Pretty simple. Yes, the Supreme Court should and will rule against this charter school. I'm, I, I believe that charter schools should be treated as public schools. So I want to be that clear. They should be treated as public schools. And I want to clarify that. I said either treat us as public schools or don't. I do want us to be treated as public schools. Now, the Supreme Court precedent on this, though, I'm a little worried that they're not going to rule the way we want them to rule on this case, in part because they've, they've had a few cases come up through federal court before where... Various courts have applied this three-part test as to whether 
uh, to treat an entity as acting on behalf of the state or not. And I won't go into it in tremendous detail, but the sort of seminal case here is Rendell Baker versus Cone, which is a case of an independent school for students with substance abuse and behavioral problems. And the question was whether they were state actors for the purposes of 1983. And they received 90 to 90% of their funding from the government. And the, the court laid out a standard in that case that they have since applied to charter schools before, including a Ninth Circuit case. And they, they asked three questions about charter schools. One is, did the government compel or coerce the conduct and issue? So if we were applying it to this case of the uniforms, they did not. Two is, was there a symbiotic relationship between the school and the government regarding the conduct? In this case, no. Like the government and the school have no really like interest in the uniforms itself. I mean, a clever lawyer could connect the dots there, but I, I think they're going to have an uphill climb on that one. And then third is, and this is the one where I think we, the people who want charter schools to be treated by the courts as public schools have the best case here is the education of children who cannot be served by traditional public schools is not historically the exclusive function of the state. So in other words, like is what the school do, is doing, is it usually the purview of the state, what you're doing, the exclusive purview of the state? And I think you've got a good case there to say like the free education of children, regardless of income, is exclusively the purview of the state usually. Now, the voucher stuff, which we'll talk about later, complicates this. So if you take that and you put it together with the North Carolina statute and other state statutes, call charter schools public schools. They've, they've got a chance to get the Supreme Court to rule in its favor, but I won't, I'm, I'm like lawyering this show too much, but like the court has ignored the fact that statutes call things public before, public in, in cases of utilities and things like that before. They, they look beyond whether the state is calling them public and actually asks are they functioning as public or not? And so deep breath, I want them to rule that these schools are public uh, and I want them to treat us as public schools, but this test concerns me. And so unless they ignore this test, which this court is very capable of doing, unless they ignore that test, I think that the school could get its day in court and this could open up a whole can of worms about charter schools and whether they're public or not. Well, the main thrust of what I was saying in the last show, as I remember it, was really that there is a right-wing push to actually create kind of a nether space, like a kind of a pseudo space, uh, a pseudo private space for charters to be able to do things that they want these charters to do that kind of skirt the law and get them outside of the law. And what I was trying to raise up as the danger of that is that it tumbles the house of cards down then on our contention that these are public schools. These schools are absolutely public. They're not quasi-private. There's nothing about them. And I'm a simple person. Like I understand all the lawyering that you just did in massaging that. But charter schools as an entity are a creature of law. So they are whatever the law says that they are. And the law in every state, if you look it up, is very specific about what a charter school is. Go to your state education website and look up the statute in your state that is behind what a charter school is. And the lawmakers make a law that tell you what the law of your land says a charter school is. There's no place I've found in the United States that it's, it's ambiguous about the fact that it is a public school. State by state, read the law. The law will say, we create this type of school out of law to be a public school that does X. They always start with, it's a public school that doesn't charge tuition, that does blah, 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 and allows educators fill in the blank of what it does after that. The courts, 
the courts do have many different cases come before them that create nuances and create kind of like problems. But at the end of the day, your state defines what a charter school is and they are public. And this push to make them quasi-private is actually a bipartisan thing between right-wingers who want to create quasi-private schools with public funding and the left-wing who wants charters to be uh, derided with this label as being kind of private, right? Because they've been trying to do that for years so that they can kill it. So enough about that. Moving on. We appreciate the <laughs> feedback as always and um, and keep it coming as truthful and as honest as it needs to be because we want this show to be good and we want it to be a forum back and forth. Bravi, I think you did a good job on that and you always do with wanting to fact check things, including me. I like to fact check me a lot. I'm sorry. I'm fact checking myself. I've been getting shit wrong lately, I realize. So which is why I actually got one of my former students because you know normally... We've got so many great researchers at Lost Debate, and one of my former students, actually the first student ever in the history of Nashville Prep and Public Schools, has taken on the job of helping us research for this show. So, because there was something we said on the last show, which was, you know, great education journalists look into these studies and they they compare it to other things, and I'm like, well, we need to add some horsepower to this show in order to get there. You know, like I want to provide that to our audience. Uh, when we when we cover stories, even though we're not like writing these articles, but like they deserve to know, they, they deserve our best answer as to what's actually going on. So shout out to Elias, who is our researcher. First of all, listen to that story though. Person goes through a school, a school that is created of a new opportunity. Uh, a charter school creates a charter to charter a new course, as it were, in an area that <laughs> desperately needs it in a city that is not doing a very good job of getting kids across the finish line. And years later that person, that young person is actually an older young person now who is working in a field that wasn't easily defined the moment that he walked through that door as a student. Like no one sat you down as a guidance counselor and told you it was possible to be a researcher for a podcast. Come on. And he's young. I mean, we hired him before he's even graduated from college, but our producer is going to get mad at me for going so long on this, but story time here. <laughs> so I moved to Nashville and I I want to open up a school in North Nashville, which has the high, had and still has the highest incarceration rates for black males in the country and had fewer than 1% of kids graduating in a college-ready ACT. So everybody's telling me this is crazy, like an Indian guy from New York trying to bounce around North Nashville, which is very skeptical of outsiders for good reason. I decide, all right, I'm showing up to town and it's like the dead of summer in Nashville and I put on a suit and I'm like, fresh off the Obama campaign and administration. I'm like, I'm going to knock doors. I'm going to talk to families. But they didn't, the, the district didn't give me lists. This gets to the, whether we're public or private. Like we've since fought them. And like, because of the laws that we're talking about that show that we are public, we're able to fight to get those lists. But I just start randomly knocking doors in public housing in North Nashville. And I wind up going through this place called the Preston Taylor Homes. And then I rent out a community center, the YMCA, and I order like 15 pizzas. And I'm like, all right, first night, Nashville Prep, we're opening up a year from now. I'm expecting hundreds of people. Why not? Like college prep, school, whatever. One family walks through the door, 15 pizzas, <laughs> and it was Elias Lukes' family. Uh, and now he works for us at Lost Debate. And he graduated from college, works for us at Lost Debate, smart kid. And that's why you called him the first student, because he literally was the first student. Was the first. I'm not kidding. Yeah, the first student we ever had sign up for. Us. Wow. Yeah. And Tommy says he's not mad. Good story. Great. Okay. All right. Well, I've done my job here. <laughs> well, listen, we had an educator, a thoughtful educator, leave us a voicemail. And the message was really asking a question around if we had any thoughts about pedagogical interventions that could be done to make the classroom more joyful, to make kids boring 
engaged in the classroom, what can be done to strengthen their attachment to schooling, to what's going on in the classroom? And I thought this was an interesting question. And my, you know, my kind of reactionary answer often would be, you know, well, Ravi, you have done schools before and, you know, this should be in your camp and whatever. But to be very honest with you, I don't like to be experts of things that I'm not expert about. And and, And that's another thing in keeping the ethic of this show. I'm a commentator who has been like the Anthony Bourdain of education. I have visited a lot of schools in the last 15 years. I've seen inside classrooms as a visitor, as a, you know, and as somebody who's deeply interested and curious But when it comes to questions like these, this is my best answer on on that for someone who is teaching and realistically needs realistic advice about putting joy in the world. Number one, don't have commentators tell you an answer to a question like this, because uh, I can tell you things that I've seen that I really thought were amazing, where kids really looked like their lights were turned on in a classroom and where the teacher looked really like they were mastering something special. But what I think educators need is they need this question, first of all, is very important. They need to raise questions like this, and they need to take them to people that are successfully mastering the thing that they're asking about. The schools that are getting joy right, the schools that are getting outcomes right, the classrooms, other teachers. Teachers need a way to collaborate with each other across lines of schools, districts, states, whatever. Teachers need more platforming of each other to be able to trade answers to questions just like this. I haven't seen that very well done, successfully done. I mean, you know, you've got these things where teachers pay teachers and you've got Pinterest and you've got different ways and it doesn't seem to always be working out for the highest quality. But I do think that there are, well, let me just back up and just finish my point, which is just that real experts on this are people that have demonstrable evidence that they're succeeding at it. That's real expert. It's not a book. It's not a seminar. It's not a webinar. It's nothing that a guy with a podcast can tell you and give you five easy steps to. The proof is in the pudding. You have to find people that have demonstrative evidence of succeeding at the thing that you're asking the question about. That's my my take on it. Ravi, you know, jump in if you have a different one. I think the the one group of people who I think did this really well are the people at Uncommon Schools who were looking at what were called, you know, 20 years ago, they were looking at what we call upper right quadrant schools. So doing what you're saying, looking at who had the results. And they basically, when we say upper right quadrant schools, we say schools were on the x-axis, it's percent free and reduced lunch. And on the y-axis, it's student achievement or vice versa. And if you go to like, what are the schools that have high percentage students for free and reduced lunch, high levels of achievement, who are those teachers? Those teachers must know something. And so uncommon, you know, with Julie Jackson and Doug Lamov and Paul Bambrick, studied those teachers both inside and outside of their network. And it changed my life, changed the lives of our kids, and really helped us find those practices. And Doug's written a lot of books about this. He used to do a lot of seminars about this and showed videos of those teachers, which is what you're talking about, Chris, like displaying those teachers, right? And like, there's a whole separate podcast about the reception of his work and all that. I actually just interviewed him. So I'll be using that at some point. But that to me is the kind of stuff. Now, people don't have to agree with what he decided based on what his reading of the evidence were good practices. People should just go out there and do this in the era of YouTube. Get people's permission, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. get school's permission, and get out there and tape 
and share best practices from teachers that based on your reading of the evidence do really well. I think that kind of stuff is welcome in 2023. I really appreciate the question, Mark. Thank you for being a listener of the show. And thank you for sending us this thoughtful question. You left it on a voicemail. So I encourage others to do the same thing. Leave us voicemail and we will thoughtfully uh, consider the things that you have to say back to us. Now to jump into the segment that always starts off the show because I'm supposed to be the get off my lawn guy. Oh my God, I'm mad at everything. I wonder why. A guy who hates the warm weather in Miami in December. I wonder where you got this reputation from. Oh my God. That shouldn't even, whatever. That shouldn't be a thing. And what do you hate? White Lotus, Game of Thrones? Like, I mean, like you just, you hate anything popular. You probably hate Shawshank Redemption, don't you? Oh my God. Yes. That's terrible. You do hate? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. unbelievable. Of course I it's do. Unbelievable. <laughs> How did I know? How did I know? Of course I do. But anyways, we're talking about things that make me mad because here I am, the, the get off my lawn guy. And uh, it's going to be standardized testing again. I uh, just talked about it last night with some colleagues on the Eight Black Hands podcast. I'm going to continue talking about it and really being an advocate, a voice in the woods around um, standardized testing, because I think it has been maligned, mischaracterized, and I think the reversal, the popular narrative that is undoing standardized testing actually has unintended consequences the like of which you have never seen in education. If we were to have everybody opt out tomorrow of taking any standardized test, I can guarantee you we'd go into an educational ice age and then we would reinvent testing again at some point in the future. So let's save ourselves the time. That's my take at the beginning of this, but there's been so much talk surrounding standardized testing and whether they're a proper measure of academic success and benefits in the long run or whether they're a product of systemic racism and white supremacy, which is one of the strongest kind of anti-testing narratives that there is right now. There's this piece in the Atlantic right now called Are Standardized Test Racist or Are They Anti-Racist? Yes. And basically the piece is saying something nuanced is they can be both. There could be things in. And here's a quote from the piece. These two perspectives that standardized tests are a driver of inequality and that they are a great tool to ameliorate it are often pitted against each other in contemporary discourse. But in my view, they are not oppositional positions. Both of these things can be true at the same time. Tests can be biased against marginalized students and they can be used to help those students succeed. We often forget an important lesson about standardized tests. They, or at least their outputs, take the form of data, and data can be interpreted and acted on in multiple ways. That to me is my, my one of my main takes about this is, yes, you can say I don't like the way the tests have been used. Yes, you can say I don't like the way they're administered or whatever. But what you shouldn't be able to say is I don't like data. I don't want to know where the kids are not doing well. I don't want the data to be disaggregated so that we can tell that for decades we've been washing away the problems that we have with kids of color or low-income kids. So I get all the NCLB is racist and blah, 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 whatever. And to me, that kind of feels like, you know, math is racist and mm-hmm. the alphabet is racist and and a ruler is racist. That's the same but, Okun. I don't know. It's like 13 different things that are white supremacy and like punctuality is one of them. It's like so stupid. And <laughs> yeah. it's like... And, and, if you can't, in case you can't tell, Tama Okun is, is a white person, by the way. And it has no <laughs> sense of self-awareness to be like, saying punctuality is racist is racist. Like, like implying that expecting anybody of any color or creed to show up on time, 
like lowering the bar for people based on their skin color is you being racist, not me. Like that's like, but these are the kind of things that exist. I don't want to blow them out of proportion because you gave me a hard time about this last week. So I'm not going to be on my extreme left, like get off my lawn. I want to say this thing. I'm not going to underestimate the number of things that can be racist. (laughs) Like, like, like there are a lot of things that can be racist. I'm not going to underestimate it. I do know what you're saying though. (laughs) So I wrote a piece, I think it was called standardized tests are progressive for our lost debate newsletter. And There are certain things in this piece in The Atlantic that echo some things I said, including the fact that I want to give this author credit for pointing out that most of the alternatives to standardized tests have the exact same problems, if not worse, than standardized tests. So, for example, letters of recommendation and enrichment and all this kind of stuff. There are some problems though. Like they, this, this does this sort of genetic fallacy that you've talked about. It goes back to like Harvard and when they, they created standardized tests and all that, but totally neglects to mention that for a period of time, Harvard, this is something we talked about, I think in one of the very first episodes of the show, Harvard and a lot of these elite schools were standardized tests only. And they only changed that policy because Jews were getting in. So then they started to add these more holistic forms of admission, right? So you could say that the inclusion of standardized tests is racist, but also the move off of standardized tests was also from racist motivations. And that gets to the genetic fallacy. You need to untangle it and be like, well, how are they being used today? As opposed to like, you know, you go back a hundred years, you can find a reason for and against any one of these design elements because there were just so many racist policies in these universities that you could point to including them and not including them and call it racist. But I think like, I get a little worried in this piece when they just talk about, there's like this, almost this assumption about the tests that they're somehow exclusionary. And I'd be interested, Chris, because I imagine you feel a cer- certain way about John McWhorter and some of these people. Yeah. Uh, so I want to read you a piece from John McWhorter in the New York Times that I liked. So I'm always curious to see, because I, I, I'm, I'm vaguely aware that you, you've kind of gone at people like him on Twitter. So this is what he wrote. Too often the message being communicated to black and Latino people is that our presence is what matters, not our performance. I'm uncomfortable, for example, with the domino effect elimination of standardized testing requirements and university admissions policies across the country. Is it that the tests ask racially biased questions? Which ones? Is it that it's somehow unfair to give a black or Latino student a test of abstract cognitive skill and that black and Latino students should be tested differently? This would seem dangerously close to saying that they aren't as intelligent as others. End quote. There's more there, but this sounds like some stuff that we've said on this podcast before when we were talking about the New York State test, right? Mm-hmm. I agree with him until he gets to that last part, really, about like this suggest that they're not as intelligent. No, it doesn't. It suggests that they haven't had the same opportunities to demonstrate their intelligence in the K-12 situation that gets you prepared to be at that moment. If you're looking at where people come from and you have a pool of people and you look at where they come from, you do have to ask yourself what type of opportunities have they had up until this moment, which is why a lot of colleges want to say like, listen, a very wealthy kid who skated his way through one of the best private schools to get to Harvard's door Versus the kid that came in with the exact same SAT score who actually overcame a million hurdles to get at, arrive at that same point. 
the number could be the same between the two of them, but the actual kind of character and depth of their academic potential is, I think, different right? It just is. I, I don't know, like in a realistic world, like the, those two, which is why you start getting into narrative stories. Okay. Yes. You went to one of the best private schools. Okay. Yes. You did lacrosse too. Okay. Yes. You did every <laughs> summer in a foreign country and you learned a foreign language. Ah, okay. Great. Oh, you grew up in yeah. Queens with a single mom who worked like, a you know, uh, shifts where she couldn't help you with any of your homework. And you had to go to like upward bound and after school programs that were underfunded or whatnot. And you still came in at this level. Wow. Well, something else is happening in your life. Yes. Let's underline that because that's where you, I, and this author all agree. And maybe even John McCorder. I have no idea. I don't know him. But I think we would all, we should all agree that this resume padding of fancy kids is kind of bullshit. And like, it's, it's bullshit in high school. It's bullshit in college when people are applying to professional schools. And the kid who worked at McDonald's after school and got good grades to me is more impressive than the kid who is like a, a excellent violinist who had private lessons the whole time. Right. And schools are not doing enough to interrogate the difference between those two things. Cause we all know we've employed enough people, you and I, Chris, we all know that that kid who worked at McDonald's job and managed to have good grades is probably going to be a better employee and a more gritty, hardworking, reliable, professional person than the kid who's excellent at the clarinet. No offense to the person who's like, doing all the fancy kid stuff. Like, and I know there are non-fancy kids who do that stuff well too, but you could figure that out in the application process. There's a difference between the, you know, the child of Korean immigrants who works at the ice cream stand in Palisades and somehow squeezes in violin versus the kid who lives in Brentwood, Tennessee and is going to the fancy private school where they offer it, right? And schools aren't doing nearly enough to try to figure these things out. And actually, on the contrary, there's an admissions officer at Brentwood Academy who's calling up Harvard and they have a personal relationship and they don't have that relationship in, you know, IS-51 or Port Richmond in, you know, in New York City, you know, or traditional district school or whatever, right? Pearl Cone High School in Nashville. They don't have those relationships. Yeah, those relationships that fast track your access. I actually want to, as an aside, say one thing around this testing so, you know, where do you fall down on schools making SATs and, and ACTs optional for getting in? Because there's a piece here by John McCorder where he calls it the soft bigotry of low expectations, which we have heard before. John, you're a linguist. I'm sure you can come up with new words. It is such a great line. No, you have to admit. Now, I don't like to give credit to George W. Bush, but it honestly is the best thing he's ever it, said. It was, it was a great line 10 years ago. <laughs> More than 10, man. We're old. Do the math. It, it's way more than 10. We're that old. Way more than 10 years ago. 10 years ago, he was still saying it to great effect. And let me put it that way, <laughs> right? Like, like it, it kind of played out at least a decade ago. But anyways, the, the point that John is making is that the removal of SATs and ACTs is the soft bigotry of low expectations. So how do you feel about schools changing and liberalizing the way that they rate whether or not young people should be able to get in. You know, there's this movement now. The American Bar Association recommended that law schools drop the LSAT. I think over 1,800 undergraduate institutions have waived ACT and SAT requirements for fall 2020 admissions, at least. I don't know what the 2023 story is yet, obviously. We haven't gotten there yet. And so I don't love that because... I don't think that the standardized test should be the sole indication, but I'm just worried about what they're going to replace with. I don't trust these people. So if, mm -hmm. if they were saying, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are some schools that do this, hey, we're going to de-emphasize all these other things and we're actually going to invest resources in 
building more relationships with traditional public schools, including Title I schools. And we're going to just get really good at that. And we're going to get rid of legacy admissions and we're going to get rid of all these other things that favor the elite. Then I'd be like, all right, I trust you, even though I, I, I like standardized tests as a measure more than you might. I trust you based on these other things that you're saying, that you're heading in a good direction. But they are not doing that. They're getting rid of the one objective metric that they have, and then they're keeping their ability to do subjective measures. And I I interviewed a couple of experts a couple months ago about this, and one guy likened it to the nightclub bouncers, and that these college admissions officers love their power. They love to be able to ask kids to tap dance for them and pick who, you know, who's tap dancing with the most enthusiasm. And they like the fact that kids don't exactly know what the criteria is for admissions because that gives them power. If the criteria was so objective that everybody could predict, hey, if I get this score and I go to this school and yada, 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 I can get in, then the admissions officers don't have power and they want that power. I don't want to sound like a kook, but I, I do think that, I guess, bottom line, I don't trust these people. What about you? So what people listening to this have to understand is that I'm a processing person, always processing. So like I live in a sea of ideas and I change my mind on things and I, you know, uh, I find nuances. I absolutely believe that schools should have the ability to see diversity as a good goal. And to use kind of the the enrollment process as a way to devise kind of a world class student body, a student body that's representative of the country, right? And there's a there's a moral good to that, but there's also an ac- academic good to that. I think it serves multiple purposes. At the same time, I'm really deeply afraid of the uh, Dunning Kruger movement. I'm really afraid of the dumbing of America the lowering of bars and standards and the expertise of non-experts, the armchair kind of viral epidemiologists that exist on Twitter to great effect, the um, turning over public policy to people that we haven't prepared to be worthy of holding public policy, the the George Santosing of of Congress, <laughs> the the kind of just the idiot idiocracy is a cancer. In the, in the country that I think will grow and get worse and will be worse than any foreign nuclear program ever if we don't have tests and gates. And even the thing you said about legacy emissions, I don't want to stop elite people from going to colleges. I think the better question is why are there so few seats, right? Like that everything yeah. has to be a hunger games. I don't want to cut people off from college, period. So let's just talk about the number of seats. But the tests, like we have a battery of tests in this country the LSAT, all of that stuff, all I see is a deterioration. No standardized tests. I'm not, I don't exist if there's no standardized tests. My dad grew up in poverty in India and he got rejected from the state medical school because it was corrupt, but he got into the even more difficult to get in national medical school. He was going to school under a tree, literally in the dirt and wound up taking an exam. And because India uh, like this country back when I was taking the LSAT and I got into Yale Law School from Binghamton, because that India and then this country at a certain point said, hey, if you kill this test, it really means something. So there's something about that predictability that's empowering to people. And my dad was able to take that test, get into medical school in India, the National Medical School, and then move to the United States. And I exist. And then I'm in Binghamton, a school that hadn't sent somebody to Yale Law School for 10 years when I was there. you know. And I'm able to, and I had a good GPA, 
but I was able to take the LSAT, do really well. And I was like, all right, this is predictable. But now they get rid of that LSAT. Imagine what my experience would be now. No LSAT, right? Then it's my 4.0 GPA. I, had. I couldn't do better. I had a 4.0. But now, then it's my 4.0 GPA against a, you know, and we know the great inflation. I don't even have to quote any of this. The ACT did a good study about how just rampant it is. Like, it's you can get an A at Yale pretty easily right now, but let's say they have a 3.8, right? Which is actually like probably a bad GPA at Yale at this point based on the great inflation. Um, I don't want to overstate that. But now I'm competing with my 4.0. I literally couldn't do any better against a kid with a 3.8. Chances are with no LSAT, they're probably accepting that Yale kid over me. So that's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. really troubling to me. Like that you can't, there's no objective measure where I can say, hey, I did this thing, that other kid did this thing, and I did better than that kid on this thing. That's what worries me. So a couple of things. The first one is I just love the story that you tell. Like the story that you told is like one of the reasons why I just love having people like you in my life. Older people, listen to me when I say this. If you are not mentored by younger people, there's something wrong with your life. Mentorship isn't a one-way direction thing. And Ravi, you're like this great example of the people that I'm really proud of to call a friend and have in my life. Oh, thank you, man. Likewise. Because I learn from and, and hear from like the story you just told to me is the story I would have loved to have told about myself years ago. Mm. It's the thing I think I had the intelligence to have a similar story, but didn't it didn't come true for me. So you are like my exemplar, my status, and I get to say I have a friend like this. I, I get to say like I know somebody who has your your profile and the thing that you just described. I have so much respect for that. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And it's like I collect this in my life. It makes my life better. Uh, and especially as a person that's growing older and in this thing and I have my own kids, I want my kids to have your story, right? Like, because I didn't. Right. That, that's, you know, you have a story I didn't have. So let me just say that first, because we should stop and say that oftentimes. And older people listening to me, be mentored by younger people. It's the thing that's going to keep you alive and, and keep you growing and moving forward. Now, you did say something in there that I want you to touch on, because there's this other story that we have that came out of ERA, which I think I... I'm going to mess it up, but I think it's the American Education Research Association. And it's about high school GPAs being more of an indicator than SATs and, and ACTs. And I wonder if you have any kind of response to that or rebuttal to that. And then we'll move on to the next section. But do you think GPAs are a better... Yeah, the problem is there's, there's great inflation that's pretty rampant in both college and in high schools. And I talked about ACT, their researchers found evidence of grade inflation over 10 years. So the average high school GPA increased 0.19 grade points from 3.17 in 2010 to 3.36 in 2021. 3.17 to 3.36 in 10 years. That's huge. If that trend continues in the next 30 years, we're talking about like kids in the high threes average. So how are we supposed to disaggregate that? And it's totally subjective. What, you know, we all know this. There could be you could have the most amazing teacher ever, and they're just a stickler on the grade. Or you could go to a, a school that's really awesome at teaching kids, and they just aren't as exacting as the others. And there's nothing to keep them all in check, right? So, if they were, if they did sophisticated statistical analysis when evaluating these grade points, be like, what's the average of these kids relative to their SAT, and how do we like? Because and then we'll be like, I know the kid at Pro Cone with a three seven means this versus a kid who goes to Brentwood is this based on historically what those kids have shown and yada, 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 I'd be more into it. 
it's it's interesting to me, but I think it also doesn't take into account the fact that let's say a world where we start to weigh grade point average more, it's only going to increase the grade inflation because then there's going to be even more pressure on those teachers. They're going to feel really bad every time they give kids a B or a C or et cetera. So I'm worried about putting too much weight in something as subjective as that. I'm generally very weary of placing too much emphasis on too many subjective measures. I know there's a place for them, but I always worry because I think when there's subjective measures, the elites, that's their playground. They love the subjective measures. They love to game the subjective measures. Well, if you're listening to this and you're an educator or an expert or someone who is a psychometrician or any of those... Or a psycho. Or a psycho, send us a message. Either send us a voicemail message or an email message and tell us about what you agreed with in that segment because I imagine that last part is especially the difference between GPAs as a predictor of college success versus the SAT and ACTs is ripe for controversy and fight and discussion. So send us a message. Let's move on to another near and dear core issue of reform world, to me, near and dear, that I'm finding nuances in. I've been a lifelong supporter of what has been called school choice. I've never been entirely comfortable with school choice. I have a mentor, Howard Fuller, who has always told me, Chris, it's parental choice. It's not about school choice. Schools aren't the ones that choose. It's (laughs) parents that are supposed to choose. And, you know, in my mind, I've even, I'm even more kind of libertarian, radical hippie than him is more like it's learner choice. It's like you have a human, you have a human right as a learner, as a young person who is intellectually developing to have as much self-determination as possible to determine how, what, when, and where you're going to learn. Period. That's just a human right. And oh, by the way, Article 26 of the International Human Rights Declaration, it says exactly what I just said. So it's mm-hmm. an international human right, as a matter of fact, Article 26. But in the United States, it's been highly politicized. School choice as a premise and as a practice, as a policy, I should say, highly politicized. One thing I always ask people to do is go to Ed Choice, which is a, a, a pro school choice organization. I'll put that out there right from the beginning. But they list all the different types of school choice in the country and and the different types of programs that are available in different states. And they run the gamut from being just for kids with special needs and kids that might be deaf and hard of hearing in some cases. Uh, some are, are based on uh, income, like low-income students. Some are about tax credits and and rebates and educational savings accounts or a just direct voucher, which is basically a coupon to go to school. There's just all these variants. So when we say school choice, let's not pretend we're talking about one thing everywhere. But there's a story in the 74 right now that says, study finds school vouchers decrease racial segregation in Ohio classrooms. <laughs> and I've got questions and I've got suspicions <laughs> and I've got hunches about these types of studies that get brought up. But Ravi, what do you think about this particular study? Well, it's one study in one state. And we've been through this before. We talked about the Tennessee stuff last week. We were giving a hard time to a journalist who was cherry picking studies. So I think Let's put it in its place right now. This is a study about Ohio's vouchers. Now, I think there's some really fascinating data here because this is basically looking at data that any of us could pull ourselves and replicate. It's not like a laboratory experiment where sometimes tricky things can happen behind the scenes and you have to replicate the experiment. This is something that historically happened, so we can look at the data ourselves and check it. So I think the bias is harder to pull off in a study like this because you can't hide 
behind like, hey, I did this thing behind the scenes, right? So, and and the author of this article is Kevin Mankin in the 74. And important caveats here from the beginning. Uh, one is that the report was commissioned by the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, which is a very reform-friendly think tank in Ohio. So by an organization that wants this outcome in the study, but it was conducted by an Ohio State University professor. My instinct here is I couldn't figure this out, but I that it had to go through the institutional review at Ohio State, which I think does matter. But once again, like the data here is easily verifiable to somebody who wanted to give this study a hard time. And so in the absence of some statistician proving this wrong, I take them at their word that this is correct. And essentially what they found was that students who participated in this massive expansion of vouchers, which is public dollars for kids to go to private schools, which is different than traditional charter schools, which are schools that are run independent of school districts, but still public, as we talked about at the beginning of this. This is giving kids money to go to private schools. And by and large, this study found that a couple of things that the naysayers, the doomsayers were saying about vouchers in Ohio did not happen. Namely, number one, this actually decreased segregation, so increased integration. So a lot of kids who were economically and racially congregating in more homogenous schools, like it started to mix up the racial balance. Essentially, kids of color were were taking these vouchers to private schools that were more traditionally white and Asian. And so creating a more integrated school system. They also found that the achievement and the financial picture in the district even after these kids left, was either the same or better, depending on how you read the data. So these are all really interesting findings about this program in Ohio. I will underline like this particular implementation of this program in Ohio. But Chris, you know so much more about vouchers than I do. You've you've invited me to your, you know, secret voucher meetings over the past where I, like <laughs> your right wing friends berate me for not being pro voucher, which I've become more warm to over time. But you guys gave me a hard time a couple of years ago because I wasn't ready to declare for vouchers back then. So you tell me, what's up with this? Well, I just want to say, I don't have any secret voucher meetings. Oh, you did. This is the one where you made me sit in the Mall of America for 48 hours. The guy who complains about us going to Miami in an open-air hotel, which I'll never get over. You literally had me fly to your city and not leave a mall. The Mall of America, not a mall. Calling the Mall of America a mall is like calling the United States a country. No, it's the Mall of America. I don't America. mean to sidetrack you, please. <laughs> I actually am legitimately interested in what you think about this program and actually where you are in vouchers nowadays because I I know that you, as you described, you are somebody who likes to read evidence and change your mind. So where are you these days on this kind of stuff? So I think, you know, even with this study, every all your caveats are right. One state, one program, and this is like this is helpful to the debate. Talk about specific places and things. When you say school choice, it can mean eight million different things. So when you say school choice is bad for public education, or school choice causes segregation or whatnot, it'd be good to refocus the conversation. Say where, and like, and show us where you're talking about. Because in Ohio, this particularly says that number one, the majority of the kids that benefited from this program, this Ed Choice program, were kids of color. A majority of those, these kids were kids that economically needed a leg up and needed, you know, an, an opportunity. And that when they got it, they actually found that opportunity. Their achievement went up. It didn't ruin the achievement of the schools that they left and the districts, the places that they left. And it didn't necessarily resegregate, like cause segregation, because a lot of these kids of color were leaving segregated circumstances to go places that needed the integration. 
right? That's one thing that we don't really talk about is like this as a strategy for integrating. If you keep kids trapped in educationally redlined and gerrymandered districts, of course, that causes segregation. Giving them kind of avenues out of that into places they wouldn't normally be able to get to where there are where there's less redlining and all of that. This might be the story or the study that proves a positive for school choice that has a location-based example that you can look at. And let's argue about it. If you don't like school choice after looking at this study, you know, the story in the 74, if you look it up, it's called Study Find School Vouchers Decrease Racial Segregation in Ohio Classrooms. I think it makes a good test case and people should go look at it. What I want to say at the same time is this is why I keep warning, though, about don't globalize things. Let's be specific of where we're talking about. The same time that there was another group that put out something. Let me see here. This is the National Coalition for Public Education. It talks about three states, Arizona, New Hampshire, and Wisconsin, where they had school vouchers go into place. And in Arizona, 80% of the kids enrolled in that program were actually already in private school and had never attended public school. 80%. Mm -hmm. This is the problem. Yeah, this is where it gets dicey. Yeah. In New Hampshire, it was 89% were already enrolled in private school. So you were giving tax-funded vouchers to kids that weren't even in public school. So it wasn't really like school choice for public school students. It was a subsidy for private school students. Same thing in Wisconsin, 75% already in private school, right? Who, who become the beneficiary. So the point that I'm making here is be specific about where you're talking about. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this Ohio legislation hinged on students attending a school that was designated as underperforming in order to be eligible. So I think there was some kind of mechanism in the Ohio voucher that said you had to be coming from the traditional system in order to be eligible. And the amount of money I think is interesting. So 60,000 kids received these scholarships and it's $7,500 for high schoolers, $5,500 for younger children uh, to defray costs at private schools. And those are interesting numbers, knowing the per pupil funding in Ohio and all that. It's not as high as I'd want it to be. I would want it to cover 100% of the cost of private education, which I imagine that does not. But that's that's higher than in a lot of other states that do this. So I think that's interesting. But the, the segregation integration point is huge because those of us who've been skeptical of vouchers, some of us are not skeptical of vouchers because it's not that I don't want kids to be able to take advantage of private education and be able to afford it, you know, because I think. If, if rich kids should be able to do it, I think everybody should be able to do it. But I, I'm, I'm always worried about the incentives involved. And I, my seminal experience with this kind of stuff was Mississippi, where they had these uh, segregation academies. And I was a little worried that the law would be passed in a way in Mississippi that would only enhance those segregation academies and give mm -hmm. families mm -hmm. the money from the state to subsidize racist institutions. And that was always my my gripe with vouchers in Mississippi. Now, there's obviously a way you could write that law to prevent that, but until somebody can convince me they could write a law like that, in states like that, I'm always a little worried. Well, I have a question for you on this point that I think is a little bit provocative that splits the school choice people in half. But before I ask you that question, I want to double click on this thing around what's the purpose of your school choice strategy. In Ohio, they have a low income preference in their school choice kind of 
way of seeing the world, right? Like low-income students get priority in in a few of their school choice programs, uh, whereas in some other places, it's just kind of like, you know, universal or whatever people want. The piece I wrote about this this last week is about the school choice movement getting hijacked by people who want, they want money to be taken out of the schools so that they give it to parents who want to escape things because they think the curriculum is too woke or they don't want mm-hmm. to go to school with gay kids or whatnot. Listen, to each his own, if that's your driver, your motivation for school choice, that's not really my movement. That's not the same reason that I'm down for this because I'm not in it for misanthropic, social, antisocial kind of motivator. That's not really the reason that I, I think this is a good idea. I think it's a good idea if you can get every kid to the learning environment that they're best suited for. That to me is amazing. If it's because you're antisocial and you just don't want to sit next to other kids or whatnot, that's still your constitutional right to believe in that. It's just not my, that's not my ministry. That's not the reason I'm into school choice. But here's the question, the kind of stratifying, I think, kind of question. There's such thing as quality blind school choice, meaning the reason that we do it is because it's just your right. It's just a human right. It doesn't matter if it leads to better schools or not. As a matter of fact, you could go, you could be like Louisiana and your voucher program could send you to schools that teach you that G- Jesus rode a dinosaur and that would be perfectly okay, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like that'd be perfectly okay, right? Whereas in some places, the lawmakers are sticklers about this is a strategy for improving achievement and improving education. So where do you come down on the choice for choice sake or, you know, what I call quality blind choice? And this applies to charters too, by the way. There are some quality blind charter people in the world, and there are some quality religious people in the world, like meaning they're religious about outcomes. It's so fascinating. There was this, you might remember this. So earlier in this podcast, I talked about Great Hearts Academy. Now, I don't know a lot about Great Hearts Academy, but I know that they wrote that amicus brief that was in support of this North Carolina charter school that kind of wanted to go its own way on the scorch stuff and all that or whatever. I also know about Great Hearts Academy that they caused a huge mess in Nashville when they tried to come to Nashville to open a school, in part because they wanted to open up schools in the fancy part of town and not bus kids from the rest of the city. So they basically were explicitly saying, we're for the fancy kids. Now, schools have come to Nashville and done that since, but they've done it Differently, they have offered more busing and things like that. They've done more to try to be more inclusive. But I don't know a lot about these people, but I do know enough to know that there are school choice provocateurs uh, or just people who have different beliefs altogether about how inclusive they want to be. That, like you, I don't ride with those people. Like I don't, I don't want to be in the same movement with those people. I often think that they. I've been in rooms before, like when I was trying to pass sensible legislation in Mississippi, et cetera, where people say just rather crazy things about why they support school choice. And so I'm torn though on the sort of diversity of offerings. Like, yes, I'm not like if, if you're trying to leave the system because your kid is, you know, going to school next to a, 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 a LGBTQ student, and that's like you want to pull the kid from that. First of all, good luck finding a school that doesn't have LGBTQ students or teachers. Mm-hmm. But if that's your motivation, it's just like I, I'm with you. I'm not for that. I don't want to be with people for that. But if you're like, hey, like I want my kid to go to like, let's say it's something I don't believe pedagogically, but it's it's your right to do it. Like we talk about mm-hmm. the reading, like the battle over the, the 
you know, the Lucy Calkin style reading, or you want your kid to go to a, like a four year mechanics trade school for high school or whatever. Like I could argue with people left and right, or like a barbershop academy for four years in high school. I don't know. But like, to me, I'm pretty radical when it comes to like, if you want your kid, if you have a vision for your kid, your kid believes in that mission. I'm kind of radical in saying, Hey, like let people be, you know, let them opt into whatever educational option they want. And let's help people get there. I don't know. What about you? You know, Rebecca Klein, who used to be the education editor for Huffington Post, uh, and actually uh, wrote something last year for us, for my organization, for EdPost. She wrote something back in 2021, and it was about these Christian textbooks that are being used in schools around the country that teach that Barack Obama helped spur destructive Black Lives Matter protest and, uh, you know, a, a list of other things. This is where I came up with the, you know, Jesus rode a dinosaur type of thing. There's a school I just read about in Vice News yesterday that's run by straight up white supremacist Nazis who are teaching their kids that the kind of like the 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 glory of Adolf Hitler or whatnot. And they're in Ohio, by the way, Sandusky, Ohio or whatnot. And when you think about public funds being used to grossly undereducate kids and maybe even create kind of a problem for us, like the Dunning-Kruger movement. That's where it starts getting really hard for purists, like people like me who are just like, nah, man, you know, just let all, like, let all freak flags fly, man. Just whatever people want to do. And even still, because I'm a libertarian, I have to be inclined to say, listen, if you want to study that dumb stuff, that's on you, because I don't want you preventing me. It's where you start getting into the public money that people have a hard time with it. Really like, yeah, but should the public fund that? Well, we should do a whole segment on the Hillsboro Charter School. Is it called Hillsboro? Is that what it's called in Tennessee? Hillsdale. Like the Hillsdale. Hillsdale let's College. Do, yeah. Let's do a Hillsdale segment because this is, I think that's a great test case of this. You know, a group of rather suspect characters uh, running a network of charter schools in Tennessee. Huge dust up down there. And anytime I get a chance to talk to people down there great. Maybe we can go down there, do a field trip. Yeah. Well, we are going to go down there because Nashville is important to this story. Hillsdale, uh, for people listening, is a college in Michigan that was going to operate up to 50 charter schools that were going to be religious charter schools in Tennessee. Right now, there's a case pending, or I don't know if it's a case, but there's a, a proposal to to have religious charter schools in Oklahoma. So when I talk about the Jesus riding a dinosaur thing- Yeah, the AG- the AG basically issued an opinion yeah. rather inconvenient for the charter schools or public schools camp. So this is like, they're, they're, they're basically poison pilling charter schools unintentionally, these people. Like, they're like, yeah, we're for school choice. Yeah, they think they're improving it. Yeah. Uh, but they are poison pilling it. And by the way, the Secretary of Education of Oklahoma is in talks with Hillsdale to, um, after they've done all this anti-CRT stuff, they want to replace it with indoctrination of Hillsdale College 1776 curriculum. And Florida, DeSantis is also looking for that. So you got states now lining up for this Hillsdale thing. This will be a great show. We're going to, for, for the listening public listening to this, we'll wrap it here, but we will come back to this as a topic because in terms of dark forces that are moving things, if you are a pedestrian your kid might w walk into a school one day and have lots of things missing that you just assumed were there, and you won't know how that happened. You won't know how the teacher got fired or the library. I mean, you have an entire state that is demanding all of its teachers close its libraries and pull all the books off the shelf and code them one by one. So for this week, kids have no books in this state that I'm talking about. <laughs> for this whole week, kids are without books. What state is that? That's Florida. They're on lockdown. They're on book lockdown right now. 
So they've pulled, the teachers are pulling all the books and they have to code them one by one before they can put the books back into the classrooms and libraries. And fact check me on this, anybody listening or whatever, but we will come back to this because this is an ice age on American freedom and democracy and education, and we should not be bystanders. In the future, you're going to have people who say, yeah, if I would have been back then, I would have done so-and-so, you know, like if I was back in those days, I would have been fighting on whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, you wouldn't have. Right. You would have been drinking your overly expensive coffee, driving down the road, completely ignorant to the fact that the world was changing and your kids were becoming dumber. Anyways, this has been another episode episode. Whoa, I, I wonder why you have the reputation of get off my lawn. I wonder where that <laughs> reputation came from. Don't you attack our audience. Well, listen, Don't this you is another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. Um, as we said at the beginning, at the outset, go and check out the new newsletter that's coming out of Lost Debate Network. It's the Imbroglio. Imbroglio. Uh, and the bro is his special. So Imbroglio. It's actually funny. You're going to laugh when you see our branding because we actually do it dictionary style. Where it's Imbroglio. So so the bro actually is very central. I saw that. It made me think, oh, this is going to be the bro. Anyways, uh, Ravi puts the bro in Brolio. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's imbrolio.substack.com if you want to sign up for that newsletter. My newsletter that you can get on Substack is citizen.substack.com and it's called the Always Learning Newsletter. And if you want to call us, like I mentioned before, our phone number is 321 213 9171. That's where you can leave a voicemail. If you want to send us an email, you can send that to the Citizen Stewart Show at lostdebate.com. I am a proud member of the Lost Debate Network where ideas are, are like important enough for us to discuss from different points of view. There are libertarians, Democrats, Republicans, left-leaning people, right-leaning people, centrist those unremarkable, lukewarm people in the middle. It's got a little bit of everything at Lost Debate Network, and that's what we should be fighting for as a country. Thank you, as always, for listening. Please share the show with a friend. Subscribe to the show if you're not already subscribed. And write us a review, um, an honest review. Only positive. Of what you think about this show to help us. So Only positive reviews. Well, only positive about me, and you can write whatever you want about Ravi. Um, <laughs> we thank you guys for listening. Have a great day, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>